here. All right, Daniel chapter 4. Before we get into the Word, let's pray. We'll do a little uh, catching up, and then we'll get into the text. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, now as we go to your Word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us. Lord, we thank you for the example that we see in Daniel, in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. We pray, Lord, that as we look at this morning's text, we looked at the beginning portion of the testimony of one of the most evil and wicked men on the planet, that by the end of the chapter, it seems very clear that he's given his life to you. So Lord, we know that you can save anyone. We see with the Apostle Paul, and we see with our own lives, that you're a gracious God, a loving God, a merciful God, that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said... So really quickly to catch you up, Daniel and his friends are in Babylon serving King Nebuchadnezzar. We witnessed them back in chapter one when they were first taken captive, when more than likely their families were killed in front of them. They're drug away to a faraway land. Uh, More than likely they were castrated because they were numbered amongst the eunuchs. And then they thought maybe they were going to be enslaved. Instead, they brought out the, the best feast that the king eats and offered it to them. And Daniel said, I purpose in my heart that I will not defile myself. Because Daniel, probably 13 or 14 years old, knew the word of God, he was not going to compromise the word of God, even if it was going to cost him his life. You don't meet a lot of 13 or 14-year-olds like that. You don't meet a lot of 50-year-olds like that. Amen? (laughs) Where we're willing to die with conviction rather than live with compromise. And so here we see this very clearly that from a young age, Daniel said, I'm not going to compromise. And he, he and uh, his Jewish brothers, if you will, said, feed us what the Lord commands us. And he even found favor with the eunuchs. And they fed him, and they saw that they were more healthy. And then when they tested them later, they put him into pagan university, as I call it, right? They taught him sorcery and astrology and all this other nonsense. And even as they're being bombarded with the pagan idolatry, the, the pagan university, they continue to remain steadfast. And when they were tested at the end of chapter 1, they were found wiser than all the wise men. Now, chapter 2, it's only a year later, and King Nebuchadnezzar, who's already been killing and slaughtering Jews back in Uh, in Israel and has been carrying away only the best captive. In chapter two, he has this dream. And in this dream that he has, it it troubles his soul, but it appears that he couldn't fully remember the dream. And so it was so troubling to him. I just imagine him in the middle of the night calling for his wise men. They come in wiping sleep from their eyes. And he says, I need you to tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. And again, you can tell someone a dream and you can make up a meaning. And he said, look, I'm, I'm past that with you guys. I want to know that you really know. So you got to tell me the dream and then tell me what it means. And so, of course, they couldn't do it. They said only the gods could do it. He had told them if they didn't do it, he was going to start killing the wise men. So he starts killing the wise men. Well, they go and get Daniel. They wake him up. And when they come to Daniel, they let him know the wise men are being killed, a man by the name of Ariok. He wins some favor with Ariok, comes before the king and says, look, give me time and I will give you an answer. And after he did that, what did he do? He went and sought his brothers. They got on their face and they prayed and they believed that God could bring the answer. Of course, they came back. They gave him the answer and the king, he told him what the dream was and the interpretation of the dream. And at the end of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, your God is God, because how could you have that wisdom? 
Now, when we get to chapter 3, we fast forward about 16 years. At the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is confessing that the God of Daniel is God, and they were going to worship him alone. We, get to, we, get, we go 16 years ahead. He's forgotten all about that. And he built the statue unto himself, 90 feet tall, in the middle of the valley. And so everyone could see it. And they were told when the music plays, you drop to your knees, you drop, fall to your face, and you worship the idol. And if you don't, you're going in the fiery furnace. And yet again, what do we see? We see everyone compromising. Daniel must have been away because he's not there. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the only ones that continue to stand. They're brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? And I love the response. They said, our God, whom we serve, he will deliver us. But even if not, we will never bow to this idol. Lord, help us to have that same heart. Amen? That we will never bow to the idols of this world. We will never make anything else more important than God. We will never deny what his word says. And so they took that stand, and it just made him heated up seven times hotter. As I said last week, how hot does fire need to be, burn, be to burn? He was trying to make a point. I imagine him screaming with those veins in the neck popping out. Heat it up! I can just see him. Well, then we know what happens. He takes men of valor. They go to throw him in the fire, and the fire is so hot when they open the kiln, more than likely from the top, and they drop them in, and you can see through the side. And we know what happens is that all the men of valor die because the fire is so hot. But they throw the three Jewish boys in, and, they were, and then we see the response from King Nebuchadnezzar as he looks into the fiery furnace there, and instead of seeing three bound, you know, being burnt into ashes, he sees four walking around, and the fourth one in the likeness of Jesus, the Son of God. Amen. Someone asked me last week, how could he recognize Jesus? I think everybody's going to know who he is when we see him. Can I get an amen to that? that? You don't have to have a picture of him. We're going to know who he is and praise God for that. And at the end of the text, what happens again? Dan, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are elevated yet again. Nebuchadnezzar yet again says, your God is God. He is the true and living God. Now, we come to chapter 4, and we're not going to look at the whole chapter. It's 37 verses. We're going to get the first half this week. We'll get the second half next week. I want to get to about 40 pages of notes. I stop. But what we're going to see in the next two weeks is really an incredible testimony. And this chapter is one of the most unique chapters in the Bible because even though it's in the book of Daniel, this entire chapter is written by King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar is basically writing down his testimony, and he's going to be very transparent in the beginning of it that he continued to run to the world for answers. We're also going to see when he has that realization who God is, but it's going to take his humiliation first. So what's going to happen is he's going to talk about himself. He's going to talk about how he came to know the true and living God how he began to worship it. Now, some people will debate that. I actually believe when we get to heaven, we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to ask him to pop that vein for me just so I can check it out, right? <laughs> we're going to see the guy who said, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? And, but we're going to see this week and then next week, the next week we're going to see the humiliation. He has to come to the end of himself. And once he comes to the end of himself, he looks up, he sees God, God raises him up, and he proclaims him to be the true and living God. So if you have your outline, grab it for Daniel chapter 4. 
Again, we're going to look at verses 1 through 18 this morning. I tell the message from a murderous Gentile king to a humble follower of God. Every time I read stuff like this, I want to just say this right now. I want you to know the Lord loves you. He loves you. He knows everything about you and he loves you. He knows you best and he loves you most. And you know what? I was thinking about this a lot at the conference. I don't think any two relationships with the Lord are the same. Have you ever thought about that? What I mean by that is I have an intimate relationship with the Lord that is mine alone. I talk to him every day. I, he, you know, I have that relationship with him. And I, and I believe every one of us that are born again, we have a relationship with him. And some of our relationships are closer than others. Amen? And we should always desire to walk in deeper fellowship with him, to have the intimate relationship with him. That's why sometimes when you talk to some people, you know, if you're really close to the Lord and they're not, they've got a different perspective on the relationship with God. And so I just want you to know the Lord loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And you know what? It doesn't matter. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Amen? And you can take a thousand steps or a million steps away from God. It truly is only one step back. And when you see the salvation or you see the work of God and people who are so evil and so wicked, you know, some people say, well, I don't understand why God would forgive them. I'm thankful God forgave them because that means there's hope for me. Amen? I appreciate when people, people, oh, Jeffrey Dahmer got saved. That doesn't seem right. I hope he did get saved. Amen? Why? Because we're, our God is a God of love and grace and mercy. So let's go over the outline. First of all, in, again, no one is beyond saving from a murderous Gentile king to a humble follower of God. First of all, recognizing the greatness of our God, recognizing no matter how much we may accomplish in this life, wealth, power, position, praise of men, we are nothing compared to Almighty God. And he's going to go from who is the God that will deliver you out of my hand to humbly ascribing greatness to Almighty God. A guy that mocked God is going to worship God. And that's the greatest miracle of all is that God can take dead sinners who hate the Lord, who curse his name, and by his grace, transform them into those who he walks in intimate fellowship with. And praise God for that. Amen? Number two, sharing your testimony of how you came to know the Lord. This is irrefutable. If you're a newer believer or if you've been saved for 50 years, we all should know our testimony. And if you've never done this, I would encourage you, get a couple of pieces of paper and write down your testimony, what you would share with somebody if you were in the elevator with them for 90 seconds. How would you tell them about what happened in your life, who you are in Christ, what has the Lord done in your life, who were you before you met the Lord, how you turned away from the world to the Lord, and the transformation from a false temporary peace based on your circumstances to join the Lord. That's what's going to happen with, with Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to be sitting in the palace, and it's going to say that he's at peace, but that peace is a false peace, and we see this all the time. I don't know why I keep bringing him up, but Matthew Perry, uh, he, he talked about when he was young, he prayed and he said, God, make me famous and give me whatever goes with it. And that's what happened. And his fame basically destroyed his life and he struggled. But then he said later in life, he got on his knees again. And this time he said, Lord, forgive me. And the truth is that we can have all the world has to offer and your flesh will never be satisfied. You could be the king of the world. Like Nebuchadnezzar is to some degree, he's the king of the greatest nation on the planet. He's the most powerful man in the world, and he still doesn't have peace because you cannot have peace apart from the Prince of Peace. Amen? 
Because the peace that the world has is based on its circumstances. And for us, our peace has nothing to do with our circumstances, but it's the joy of the Lord. It's the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. It's the promise of eternal life. And because of our relationship with him, we're going to have joy even in the greatest trials of life. Amen? So point number two, share your testimony of how you came to know the Lord. By the way, the Lord should be the first thing, one we turn to, not the last resort. Amen? Well, I went to 47 doctors, and I, you know, I, looked at my, I looked at my tarot cards, my astrology stuff, and I listened to Dr. Phil, and then I don't have any answers. I guess I could pray. You know, and that's a mentality. Well, I guess we can pray. Guys, the first thing we ought to do is pray. Every knee will bow and tongue confess, and we should be confessing it now. Lord, does our God answer prayer? What's the answer? And sometimes he says no, but even when he does, it's what's best. So we have to trust in the sovereignty of God. He must be the first place we go, not the last resort. Number three, pride goes before destruction. You know, God often has to take people to the end of themselves before they will surrender fully to him. I think there's two extremes on on how many people come to the Lord. One is they lose everything. They end up like, you know, the prodigal son eating pig slop, saying, you know, it was better dad's house being a servant than this and they come home. But sometimes, like with King Nebuchadnezzar and with Matthew Perry, they get everything. They got everything the world has to offer, but something's still missing. Because again, all the world's stuff, it's all, it's all going to burn. It's wood, hay, and stubble. It's not going to survive. It won't last. And your, again, your flesh will never be satisfied. And so there comes a place where we got to be at the end of ourselves. Often people will come and say, will you pray for my son or daughter? They're wayward. And when I pray for them, sometimes they're shocked because here's what I pray. Do whatever is necessary to get their attention. I pray the same thing for my own sons when they were struggling. Lord, if they have to go to prison, do it. If they have to be in a car accident, do it. Do it. Please keep them from the ultimate harm, but do whatever is necessary. To, if they have to be in pig slop to look up, put them in some pig slop. Amen? Because guys, you know what's more important than anything else? Having a relationship with the true and living God and nothing else matters, amen? I'd rather have, I'd rather have a son on fire in prison for the Lord than you know, in the White House not knowing the Lord, amen? And so here this exhortation is going to come about the pride that he deals with. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One of the main themes of the pastor's conference this year in every message, and these are guys that God has used mightily. Most of them now in their 70s, virtually all of them have, are pastoring very large churches that have planted lots of churches, that have done lots of mission work. And every one of these guys that taught spoke with great humility, saying, I don't even know what I'm doing. This is all God. I don't even know how we're doing this. It's totally the Lord. And guys, when we ever start taking credit for it, Lord help. Amen? We should be humble, broken, and desperate. Because without him, we can do nothing, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And he alone should get all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. Amen? It says in Matthew, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Guys, we get up in the morning. I say this all the time. I get up in the morning. I look in the mirror and I see the enemy. Amen? And that guy's got to die every day. We need to die to self. But is it about us? Do you know if it's not about you, you'll be unoffendable. If it's not about you, you won't care who gets the credit. It's amazing how much God can do if nobody cares who gets the credit. Amen? If we just do it for the Lord, we don't need our name mentioned. Nobody cares. It's not about us anyway. It's all about him. And then finally, 
We are only able if the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Without the Holy Spirit, you can do nothing profitable, nothing that will impact eternity. But when you were born again, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you. So let's begin there, looking at no one is beyond saving from a murderous Gentile king to a humble follower of God. We begin by recognizing the greatness of our God. So here we go. Nebuchadnezzar, again, I find this so fascinating that this letter written by this king, this Gentile king, this murderous king, this who will deliver you out of my hands king, is in the Bible. It's a letter that he writes. Now notice what it says. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peacefully multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Does it sound like God got a hold of this guy? Because before it was, I am the great one. Who is the God? I am the most powerful. I am the greatest of all kings. When people didn't bow, he wanted them all dead. He propped himself up as to be the God that everyone should worship. And now we see that after the fiery furnace, this is about another two years later, he writes this letter. Now, you're going to notice, though, he begins with where he is now, and then he's going to give his testimony of how he got here. See, he still, even after the fiery furnace, had more that he had to learn. There were more trials he had to go through. There were more times he was going to get caught up in his flesh and have to come to the end of himself. And even though he had you know, seen Daniel, you know, tell him and interpret the dream perfectly. And even though he had seen the fiery furnace, at the end of this chapter, we're going to see that there was one more great trial he's going to go through before he finally looks up. You know, some plant, some water, some reap the harvest. Sometimes when you share the Lord with people, they'll, you know, have a, an initial response, but then they'll go back to their old way of life. And that was Nebuchadnezzar. But now these three verses are really telling us where he's going to end up where the end of his life is going to bring him, and he's come to a place of praising God. So this Gentile king is going to declare the good and amazing things God has done, and we as believers are called to be witnesses, to share our testimonies with others. And again, it's all it is. is here's who I was. Here's what Jesus did. Here's who I am today. When I was doing the baptisms at uh, Pirate's Cove, uh, most of you guys know that they had 4,500 people get baptized uh, from the Jesus Revolution movie, they advertised it, and we had a baptism there. And I was flying home from uh, my niece's wedding in Colorado. I got a text from Greg Laurie's uh, ministry saying, hey, we need more pastors. And I went down there. And I was so blessed. 4,500 people got baptized. About 20,000 people were there worshiping most of the day. The line was over half a mile long to get baptized. But when the people came out into the water, I asked them all the same thing because I didn't know them. They had these spotters, and they would come out and say, hey, this is Susan. She drove out here from Kentucky. People came from all over. And when she came out, I'd say, Susan, tell me how you came to know the Lord. That's called your testimony. Amen? Because before we baptize somebody, they must first be saved. And we all should be able to say, well, you know what? Here's who I was, and then I met Jesus, and this is what he showed me, and then I surrendered my life to him, and this is who I am now. 
And so that's the testimony that we're seeing from Nebuchadnezzar. He's giving us the result now. We're going to see everything leading up to it the rest of today and then in next week's text. But every one of us should be able to do that. And the one thing, great thing about a testimony is they're all different. You, you, nobody can refute your testimony. Nobody can say, well, no, that didn't happen to you. Yes, it did. Amen? And so you can say, this is who I was. This was the struggle that I had. I came to the end of myself. I met the Lord. Someone invited me to church, or I opened up and read my Bible, and God grabbed a hold of my heart, and after reading his word, he gripped me, and I surrendered my life to him, and now I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I have an intimate relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords. I have peace in the midst of the greatest storms because I know the true and living God, and I know where I'm going when I die. Amen? And you know what? A world needs to hear that, don't they? They need to hear that, that testimony of what the Lord has done. Again, Nebuchadnezzar is a good example of a witness, one who relates what he has experienced, and he's going to do that in the coming verses. And imagine hearing from the king who is known for his short temper, temper and murderous ways all that the Lord has done. Imagine hearing him say that to all these nations and people. He's writing this. He's sending it to everyone. Hey, you all need to know this is what happened to me. It's so like when Saul of Tarsus got saved. How do you think the apostles, the apostles responded initially when Saul came back and said, yeah, I gave my life to the Lord? I don't think so. You were holding coats when they stoned our brother Stephen. I'm not, you've, you've tracked down people in my own family and drug them off back to, to Rome. I, I don't know. And you know, he had to prove it over time. But the point is that our God, no one is beyond saving. No one. And we should continue to pray for everyone for their salvation. And we have to admit, sometimes there's people we just give up on. Amen? Oh, that dude's never getting saved. You know what? I think in our worst moments, people probably say that about us. Amen? Satan wants to keep us to keep our faith to ourselves. He wants to hide your light under a bushel. Amen? This is a light of mine. Can I get amen? I'm going to let it what? Hide it under a... Oh no. <laughs> Amen. We learned that and we learned that when we were two years old. We couldn't read. Guys, we need to live that. Amen. The world wants you to hide, hide your light under a bushel. Satan wants you to keep the light of God in the dark. If he can't destroy you, he will distract you and try to draw you away from being effective for the kingdom of God. And as believers, we are called to be salt and light to a lost and a dying world. Amen. When you show up at work, Holy Spirit just enters the building. When you're walking through your neighborhood, you're salt and light. May God use you, amen? And we need to be witnesses to a lost and a dying world. Your testimony is a great way to proclaim the truth and the power of God to transform lives. And again, while we may not have a platform like the king, we all have divine appointments with family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. And any real testimony should come from a place of thankfulness, brokenness, and humility. When you meet the Lord, you don't walk around and go, yeah, that's right, I'm saved. That's right. Right? Check me out, I'm saved. Don't do that. It's the grace of God that I'm saved, amen? Well, the Lord just needed me on his team, so no. <laughs> the Lord saved you not because of you, but in spite of you. Not because you're good, but because he's good, amen? And we should always give all the praise and the glory and the honor. Notice he says here in verse 3, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. 
I love that he says his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom because Nebuchadnezzar was a great king, but this man who made a statue of himself for all to worship humbly recognizes that God's, king is far, God's kingdom is far greater than his own. He finally comes to a place where he realizes there is a God and I'm not him. Amen? Thought he was God in chapter 3, wanted to be like a God in chapter 3, and now in chapter 4 he's saying, oh man, his, his kingdom's everlasting. Every other kingdom comes and goes and comes and goes and comes and goes. Just while Daniel is serving, there's five kings that come and go while Daniel is in Babylon. So the, the kingdoms come and go, but our, the God's kingdom is everlasting, amen? And it will never come to an end. Nothing can bring greater humility and thankfulness than recognizing the greatness of our God and all that he has done to redeem us from our sin. Nebuchadnezzar realized and recognized that while his kingdom was great, God's is greater. And while his kingdom is only temporary, God's is eternal. Again, from who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands to humbly ascribing greatness to Almighty God. So how did Nebuchadnezzar come to this place of surrender and understanding of the greatness of the true and living God? Point number two, sharing your testimony on how you came to know the Lord. Look at verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring all the wise men. He hasn't learned yet, has he? You brought him in last time. How'd that work? They didn't have any answers. But here he is. This is post-fiery furnace. And what does he do? He doesn't just say, bring the guys who didn't die in the fire. Probably a good people to talk to. Instead, he brings in the astrologers, the magicians. He turns to the world like he had before. Then it says, wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, 1-900 psychic, right? And I told them the dream, but they did not know the interpretation. So here's Nebuchadnezzar is now going to tell us the story of how he went from thinking he was God to coming to know the true and living God, from seeking glory, worship, praise, and honor to giving glory, honor, worship, and praise to God. Here's how you can tell when somebody is self-centered, when they are the topic of every conversation, when they always bring everything back to themselves, when their focus is on their three favorite people, me, myself, and I. And you meet people, and it doesn't matter what you talk to them about, they're going to one-up you in the conversation, they're going to always bring it back to themselves, they're always going to praise themselves, and you know what, you need to get over yourself, can I get an amen to that? And we all hate pride in other people. Amen? Are there a few things more nauseating than someone who's just being arrogant? Or when you see somebody on a video or something telling the police, do you know who I am? Uh, just, you, just, you just want to throw up, right? But here's the reality, we're all prone to pride. It's pride that will keep us away from the one, the King of kings and Lord of lords. As believers, we should be humble and broken and recognizing that any good in me is only because of him. I loved asking people who came in the water, tell me your testimony. Tell me how you came to know the Lord. Again, if you've never done that, I encourage you, write it down. We should all be prepared to do that. We should all be prepared to just share who we are and how we came to know Christ. Now notice he says back in verse 4, I was at rest in my house, flourishing in my palace. 
The king's rest was the false rest of the ungodly. It's temporary. It's temporary happiness based on your circumstances in the moment. How many of you guys right now, every circumstance in your life is perfect? Raise your hand. Nobody. So we would be a bunch of unhappy people to some degree because there'd be something in our life that was bothering us. Now, joy has nothing to do with our circumstances, but has to do with right standing before God. Amen? But he's saying, oh, I'm at peace. I'm flourishing in my palace. But at the same time, he knows that something's missing. Real peace and joy having nothing to do with our temporary circumstances in this life, but eternal peace that comes from knowing Jesus. He says there again in verse 5, that at the time, whoops, the wind keeps blowing my pages. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and thoughts on my bed and visions of my head troubled me. So that just goes to show you how great his peace was. He had this peace, and then he had a dream, and peace is all gone. One thing happened, and now the peace is all gone away. So it's just something you hold on to temporarily, and then something bad happens, and it's all gone. And now he's afraid. Now what's amazing to me is he's afraid. This is a man who could have anybody put to death. This is the most powerful man on the planet with the greatest army, the greatest wealth, the greatest number of people serving him, of all men on the planet, and yet he is afraid. How fragile was his foundation of rest based on his circumstances? A simple dream made him troubled and afraid, and we have peace. We know the Prince of Peace and his promises, and guys, we have nothing to fear. Now, we may have moments when we're afraid, but we don't need to be afraid. Amen? We have moments when we're afraid, but we don't need to be afraid. Super transparent. When I meet Christians that are still afraid to go outside, I'm like, what? I don't get it. Seriously. I have friends right now. They're still hunkering down and ordering their groceries. I'm like, what are you afraid of? First of all, you can't threaten me with heaven. Amen? If you got COVID, come give me a hug after church. I'll hug you. I'm worried about it. Can I get an amen to that? What about any of that nonsense? People get afraid because you know why they're afraid? Because they don't know what the future holds. And God's not giving us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. And the reason that the king is afraid when he sees this, it troubles him. He doesn't know what it means. And so he's, he's shocked to his core and he doesn't know what's going to happen at the end of his life. But because we know what's going to happen at the end of his life, we do not walk around covered in fear, anxiety, and worry. We have anxious moments. We can have moments when we're worried about our kids when we don't get home on time. I get it. That's not, that's not evil or wrong. But what I'm saying is we don't live that way. Amen? We don't have to be afraid of what's going on around us. So notice what he says. I issued a decree in verse 6, and he calls for the wise men. He had twice declared the God of Daniel was God. Twice. Your God is God. Your God is God. But then trouble happens, and he runs to the idols, to the false prophets, to those who look at the stars. We don't look at the stars. We look to the one who created the stars. Amen? And so Daniel had told them what his dream was. He had witnessed the fiery furnace, yet in the time of trouble, turns again to the same pagan counselors that had no answers to his previous dream, turning to the world again for answers. As believers, we too can fall into the trap of running to the world for answers. The Bible says to walk not in the counsel of the ungodly. What does that mean? I don't get counsel from people who don't know God. Amen? Amen. Now, can I have an unsaved dentist? Sure, but he's not giving me, he's not counseling me about my marriage. Can I get an amen to that? Can I have an unsaved mechanic, right? 
He can work on my car. But I'm not asking him how to raise my children. Amen? As believers, we do not want to get counsel from anyone who doesn't know the Lord. I don't need Dr. Phil's counsel. He needs mine. Can I get amen to that? Why? Because pray for him. But here's the reality. Oh, and they never have answers, by the way. They talk for an hour, and then they go, we're going to send you off to this program. They never have any answers. Guys, we have the answer. Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen from the dead. Amen? The answer that will take away fear is Jesus. The answer that will take away pain, again, we'll turn it over to the Lord, and he'll walk with you through it. Amen? You don't have to live this life alone. Why would we run to the world for answers when the answers they will give you will keep you from God? Amen? But what is he doing? Dude, is there a better testimony than having already heard your dream interpreted by Daniel? Is there a better testimony than three guys walking in fire with Jesus and have to be called out of the fire because it's better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without him? Amen? And and here here he is. He runs right back. And we can become creatures of habit. Well, I wonder what my coworkers think I should do about my marriage. They're not saved. It's always fun to talk to the guy that's been divorced six times and get marriage counseling from him. <laughs> Just cracks me up. And someone trying to give me counsel. My wife and I were going through stuff, grief with our, our and it, you know, we had this program we went to, and it was a Christian program. But then we had some people, neighbors, well, I think this is what you need to do. Hey, I appreciate your input. Not so much. And I told you, the lady across the street said, well, I'm a spiritist, and I could intercede between you and your son. Okay, yeah, no, we're not doing that. Can I get an amen to that? <laughs> But there's a temptation to listen to the world, and the world will always draw you away from the Lord instead of drawing you to him. Walk not in the counsel of the ungodly, and that's exactly what Daniel is about to do. Now, unlike chapter 2, verse 7 there, he actually gave them the, the, told them what the dream was. Remember chapter 2, he didn't tell them. It's a totally different dream. He tells them the dream. They still don't have an answer. Here's what my dream was. They're like, I got no idea. Now, When you see what the dream was, it's very obvious what the dream is. It's very obvious who he's talking about. So it could even be that they understood the dream because it's not that hard to understand, but they're afraid to tell Nebuchadnezzar that it's about him because they know Nebuchadnezzar kills people quickly. So they might have said, yeah, dude, we have no, I have no, I don't know what that's about. I'm out of here. But here's the thing about it. You know what godly counselors would do? They'll tell you the truth even when it hurts. Amen. Christians, we don't stab each other in the back, we stab each other in the front. Amen? Sometimes we need someone who loves us to come along and say, bro, the way you're t- I saw the way you were talking to your wife, bro, that's not okay. You got to stop that. I've seen your anger, or whatever it may be, and we need brothers and sisters to come alongside us. And so they did not get the answer. Then you get to verse 8. But at last, Daniel, at last, Daniel, how come not at first, Daniel? You made him the, most, the highest of all your wise men. Why do you wait to bring in the guy that knows God last? And again, that's often what we can do as believers. Why at last? Why the magicians, astrologers first? Nebuchadnezzar, like so many who do not walk in intimate fellowship with God, only go to the Lord when all else fails. I'd have coworkers that would mock my faith openly, and then when they're dad or their spouse has stage four cancer and they give them a week to live, then they're over at your cubicle going, hey, do you think you could pray for my dad? And I'm happy to do it. Happy to do it. Always. But the point is, it's their last resort. It's when they've thrown up their hands. It's when they have nowhere else to turn. Now that's the world. But as believers, it should be the first place we go. Amen? 
Come to the Lord first. Seek him first. Notice what it says there. It says, I came to Daniel, at last, came to Daniel before me. And it says, his, his name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. Notice that, whoa, wait, wait. Belteshazzar means servant of Baal. Baal was the false god of Ahab and Jezebel, remember? The god of lightning, the god of weather, right? And remember how that worked out when they had the call down lightning from the sky and Baal prayed, the prophets of Baal prayed, and then Elijah prayed, and we saw that God responded and lit the entire altar on fire and burnt it to the ground, and all the prophets of Baal were put to death. But notice he says, his name is Belteshazzar. That's the name they changed it to. See, when he came, Daniel means God is my judge. Yahweh is my judge. And now he comes, and they change his name to servant of Baal. And he calls him by his Baal name. And then he says, at the end of that, Baal, who is what? The name of what? My God. So now he's letting us know this is what happened before we got to that testimony in verses one through three. He said, well, here's how I got here. I had this bad dream and then I called him for him and I said, my God. So at that moment, he still, even though he saw the fiery furnace, even though he heard the prophecy from Daniel, he still is recognizing Baal as his God. Guys, You can have no other gods before me, and you can serve no graven image. You can't have a relationship with two gods. A relationship with two gods is no gods. Amen? You have to surrender your life fully to the Lord, or you're an enemy of God. And so here he says, he is to my God, right? Belteshazzar, in him is the spirit of the holy God. Now, I love that he notices the difference. So if he's the holy God, what is your God? The unholy God. Amen? the unworthy God. He said, in him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream to him saying. So he tells him the dream and he says, verse nine, Belteshazzar, chief of musicians, magicians. He must've hated that every time he heard it. Hey, Daniel, chief of the witchcraft group. Uh-uh. I ain't part of that group. You put me in pagan university and gave me a pagan university degree, but I don't care about that. He says, chief of the musicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. So he changes, he had changed his name away from a name that honors the Lord, but he's still running back to his old God, but he knows that Daniel is the one that has the answers. Now I've seen this happen also with believers kind of holding on to their old faith because they've grown up in it. My next door neighbor in Santa Cruz was also my son's baseball coach for several years. My son Mark is now in heaven. And we, were, we became very, very close. He played on our church softball team. So they started attending our church. And he had grown up his entire life Catholic. And he had been going to Catholic church. He was in his 40s, been going to Catholic church every week for 40 years. Came to our church on a Sunday, came up to me afterward and said, you guys do this every week. You open up the Bible and you just teach it. He goes, I learned more today than 40 years in the Catholic church. And then he started coming to our church and he was at our church and he he kept coming. Well, then all of a sudden he was showing up a little bit after church started. He said, well, I'm taking my kids to make sure they get confirmed. Now, why is that? It's tradition, isn't it? It's something that all the family has done. It's running back. And I'd say to him, bro, your kids don't need to be confirmed. They've given their life to Jesus Christ. They don't need confirmation. Now, again, 
Every time I do this, we have people leave the church, but God bless you, I love you. I just want to say this. The Catholic Church in all of its teachings is demonic. Amen. Amen. When you add to the cross of Calvary, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Amen. When you add last rites and communion and all, and all of the above, when you make a, and they say only through the Catholic Church can people be saved. They say that Peter was the first pope. Nowhere is that in the Bible. And they say he's the Holy Father. There's no one holy besides the Heavenly Father. Amen. And we don't worship, praise, we don't pray to men, we don't pray to saints, we don't need to go in a box and have them give us penance. Guys, that's all adding to the cross, and even a good Catholic will tell you they don't know for sure they're going to heaven, because it depends on what they do tomorrow. Because you can lose your salvation again. And they have different levels of sins. And look, if you grew up in that environment, I want you to know, he of the sun sets free is free indeed, amen? You don't have to hang on to all that stuff. You don't have to hang on to all that stuff. And I know for some of us, it's cultural. I get it. And look, and I, I will say this. If your great-grandmother died and you're worried about I do believe there are people that went to the Catholic Church their whole life. A lot of times they had no other alternative. There's women in villages in South America that love Jesus. It's the only church in town, and they go. And I believe they're in heaven. I do believe there are people who grew up in the Catholic Church to go to heaven. But I also believe the people that fall in love with Jesus leave. They're like, well, wait a minute. There's something better. I don't have to go through. There's even a fence up front and wave. Stop it. We don't need that. Let's just come straight to the Lord. Amen. I don't need to tell a guy in a boxer. He can talk to God for me. I don't need to ask Mary to talk to God for me. I don't need to ask Peter to talk to God for me. I can talk directly to God, to the Father, in the name of the Son, the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So that's who we are. And we don't want to run back. And this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's tasted it. He's seen it. But he's running back to the world again. He's running back to the way that he's been, he's grown up and the gods that he has served his whole life. And it's hard to let go of those. And I understand that to be true. Again, he had seen Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach and all that God had done in them and through them. But he says, because I know the spirit of the holy God is in you. Even as he referred to Baalus as God, he knew that Daniel's God is holy and that Daniel's God had done miraculous works. See, he believes in multiple gods. Well, I'm hanging on my God for this stuff, but I know your God's real too. We need to get to a point where it's not enough. Again, you know, the, virtually every religion says something good about Jesus to some degree. Oh, he's a prophet, or he's the highest of all the gurus, or whatever. And they'll say that. And they'll say that he's, he was a good teacher, but guys, he can't just be a good guru or a good teacher or the highest. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and creator of all things. Amen? And he's the only way to heaven. And so, and by the way, everybody has something good to say about Jesus, and we have nothing good to say about any of the false idols. Can I get him into that? They're all false. They're all demonic. They're all weak. No, we reject all of it. No. Well, you're so narrow. Well, so is two plus two is four, and so is the Bible. Can I get him into that? So it proves you can know a lot about God, but still not have a relationship with God. See, he knew that Daniel's God was powerful. He knew that Daniel's God was holy. But guys, it was still Daniel's God, not his God. And you can know a lot about God, but still be lost. Guys, it's not enough to know about him. You need to know him. Amen? You need to have a relationship with him. 
Are you married to Jesus? We're the body of Christ. Do you wake up in the morning thinking about him? Do you spend, go to bed at night praying and, inter, and you know, interacting with the Lord? Is he always on your mind? Is he a part of who you are? Every breath that you take, it's the Lord, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. This is what I live for. But then there are people, well, I believe in God. The demons believe and tremble. Amen? Well, I believe there's a God. Well, so what? That's not enough. Amen? We need to have a relationship with him. And Nebuchadnezzar at this point believes that Daniel's God is God, but he also believes there's other gods. And he knew Daniel's God was holy, but he had not surrendered his life to him. More than knowing about God, but knowing him, surrendering your life to him, making him not just your savior, but your Lord. Again, the demons believe and tremble. Believing that God exists is not enough, but having a relationship with him is necessary. Point number three, pride goes before destruction. Look what happens. There was a vision on my head while on my bed. He's telling the dream to Daniel. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was very great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely. Its fruit was abundant, and it was good food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So this tree in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was noted for its size, its strength, its prominence, its beauty, its fruit, and its shelter. So awesome was this tree that it could be seen anywhere from the ends of the earth. And so while this tree could represent many things, a, a kingdom, a false god of some kind, we don't need to guess or wonder, as we're going to see here in a few verses, exactly who this, this tree represents. Look at verse 13. I saw in the vision on my head while on my bed, there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. Watchers are referred to in the Bible a few times, and they're always speaking of angels. We know that angels are witnesses, right? And the Bible says we entertain angels unaware. And I truly believe that while we are having church, I believe angelic hosts are in our presence. The Bible says when two more are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. And I do believe that, that when, that, by the way, God is always watching. Always. You know, anytime I'm tempted to say, think, or do anything, that's, that's what comes to my mind. How about you? Uh, Lord's right here. Holy Spirit's right here. Am I going to drag this Holy Spirit into this argument? Am I going to drag this Holy Spirit to look at something that sh I shouldn't be looking at? Am I going to take this Holy Spirit into some environment where I never should be? Guys, the Holy Spirit's with us. And again, the angel's watching over, and he says, you know, I see this Holy One coming down from heaven. Not only do angels attend to, to the people of God, but as God's people gather to worship Him and His Word, we're under angelic observation. One of the things that strikes fear into me, and I think there's a good fear, the fear of God is that every single time I teach the Bible, I'm going to be accountable on Judgment Day for everything I say. So if you don't know, every time I teach, and I've been teaching for 35 years, the last, during the last worship song, all I'm doing is, Lord, please show up. Lord, you got to be here, got to be here. It's going to be a mess if you don't show up. Lord, help. Can I get an amen to that? Lord, less of me, more of you. Please, please, please. Lord, please. None of my words, your words. Amen. And there's a fear, and I think when we share our faith, we need to have that same heart, amen? The, Lord, the, the, enemy is, the, the enemy is there, but the Lord is watching. Even more important, our God sees everything, and may we live, love, serve, worship, work, 
set our eyes on things, speak to people, knowing not only are angels watching, but we take the Holy Spirit with us and our God is omnipresent. Now look what it says in verse 14. He cried aloud and said thus, this angel, come down, cut down the, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beast go out from under it, and let the birds from its branches. So the angel explains the fate of the tree. The tree was to be chopped down, which would mean it would lose its size, it would lose its strength, it would lose its, its prominence, its beauty, its fruit, its shelter. The birds that camped in it are now all gone. The beast that you know, found shade underneath it would run away. And the great and majestic will be brought down and will no longer be what it once was. So, see, we're going to see in a moment that this tree is Nebuchadnezzar. And what happened is that, yes, was Nebuchadnezzar a king that everybody knew about? The answer is yes. From one end of the world to the other, he was known as the greatest of all the kings. And he was that tree that had preeminence and that tree that bore much fruit and that tree that, you know, struck fear into his enemies. And he was that tree. But this angel is going to come and cut that tree down because even if you are in a place where, you know, you have seemingly everything the world has to offer, it's only a matter of time before all that goes away. It's temporary. It's all going to burn. It's not going to last forever. And so, verse 15, he says, Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with dew of the heaven, and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let, him be, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be the heart of a beast and let it seven times pass over him. This majestic tree will be reduced to a stump, uh, have no size, no strength, no prominence, no beauty. Have you ever seen a beautiful stump? <laughs> exactly. It's been humbled. You know, a beautiful redwood is amazing. You just leave the stump. Ah, how do we get that out of here, right? And so he's going from this place where people are in awe and reverence of him. He's been humbled. There's nothing, nothing spectacular about this tree anymore. Have no size, no strength, provide no fruit or shelter, didn't blow over, uh, a blow over or it wasn't because it blew over or struck by lightning. It was deliberately chopped down, bound with bronze. And again, when you do that, it restricts it from ever growing back. They bound it up so it couldn't grow anymore. So it's destroyed. It wasn't because of a lightning. It wasn't because of something... The angel did it. God did it. God took it down to its very roots. God humbled him. And God is going to humble him, as we'll see next week. And then it says, his heart was changed. Let him be given the heart of a beast. We're going to see this in next week's text. It doesn't represent a kingdom or a God, but a man. And we know that it is clearly Nebuchadnezzar, a man whose heart would become like that of a beast, and it would last for seven years, seven times would pass over him. This is a picture of God taking something that is mighty and strong and knocking it down. You know, we love it when God takes arrogance and pridefulness out of other people. We're, we hate pride in other people, but God has to take a man or a woman low before they will surrender their lives to the Lord. Again, blessed are the poor in spirit, or if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up the cross and follow me. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we're to be prideful and arrogant, taking credit for what God has done, God will bring you down. Ask Lucifer. Amen? 
Pride is something that God will not tolerate. Pride goes before destruction, hardy spirit before a fall. But notice the end of the verse. He gives grace to the humble. Notice what happens here is that he lets this man be changed from that of a man, given the heart of a beast. We're going to see next week. You can read ahead. But what does he end up doing? He ends up on the ground like a beast, scratching the earth. He goes from the king living in the palace to a seemingly insane man, scratching and hair growing and feathers, and just that he, he becomes like a beast for seven years. And you know when he ceases to be a beast? When he looks up, giving away next Sunday's sermon. But that's what's going to happen. You know what? God will bring us down because he loves us. He will bring you to the end of yourself so that you might look up. He will humble you and humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And you know, here's what humility isn't. Humility isn't thinking horrible of yourself. Almost done here. Humility is just not thinking of yourself at all. Amen? Amen. Jesus, others, yourself. It's not about me. It's not about whether or not it's convenient for me or comfortable for me. I'm not in the equation. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's about other people. So when you focus on doing things for the Lord and focus on ministering to other people and take yourself out of the equation, that's humility. Humility isn't saying, I'm a wretched, vile... Yeah, but you know what? You're also redeemed, forgiven, and you're holy in the eyes of the Lord. Amen? Amen? Don't lose sight of that. Let's finish verse 17. That the Most High rules in the kingdom of men... Oh, excuse me. Verse 17. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, angels, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. Notice what he says there. He said, look... This is God's plan. This is God's will. God's the one who brings people down. By the way, God's the one who put you there to begin with. And by the way, God uses the lowliest of men, so get over yourself. Amen? Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're great. I use the lowliest of men. I, when I read that verse, I thought, well, okay. Our president. But just saying. Just saying. We need to pray for salvation. Can I get him into that? It was Nebuchadnezzar's lack of self-awareness that kept him from seeing himself in his dream. And we too can get so caught up in ourselves that we never even consider how God sees us. Do you think about how God sees you, how other people see you, not how you see yourself? We tend to be favorable of ourselves. I think I have hair. You know what I mean? That's that's what happens. You know, when you look at yourself in your own way and you don't have the realization, how does God see me? How does God see you? How does God see you? How do your coworkers see you? How do your friends see you? May we be salt and light, amen? By the way, the Lord sees you as a son and daughter if you've been born again. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself. Last verse. Thus, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, declare its interpretation since all the wise men of my kingdom were not able to make make known to me the interpretation, but you are able... For the spirit of the holy God is in you. How does Daniel seem by the king as a man of God? I pray that we would live in such a way that God would get all the glory, that people would see the Lord in us. Amen? And he knows that when Daniel gives the interpretation, come back next week, he's going to give the interpretation and he's not going to pull punches. He's going to tell the truth. He's not going to be afraid like the wise men that he might die because you can't threaten Daniel with heaven. So in closing... No one is beyond saving. From a murderous Gentile king to a humble follower of God, 
recognizing first the greatness of our God. Do we serve a great God? What's the answer? And he is greater than your circumstances. He's greater than your illness. He's greater than the trials in your marriage. He's greater than your, your kids that are, are, are walking in rebellion. He's greater than any circumstance we may face. Sharing your testimony of how you came to know the Lord. We all should be able to do that. We all should do it on a regular basis. Remember that pride goes before destruction. Don't think more highly of yourself than you want to. Recognize who you are in Christ. And then finally, we're only able if the Holy Spirit dwells within us. God wants to use you, but the way that works is there's got to be less of you and more of him. Amen? Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your word. We thank you that you're a loving, gracious, and merciful God. We're thankful that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, may we remain humble, broken, and desperate, and usable for your kingdom. Help us to never think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, or when we do, convict us, Lord. Keep us on our knees. Be glorified in our lives. Use us for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said...